I read you. Where are you? Flying blind on a rocket cycle. Flying blind on a rocket cycle? And now, my friend, the first rule of Italian driving. What's behind me is not important. At the beginning, when you try the first time the 500, Fourth is Sylvain Gintoli. Sylvain taking a second out of Tony Elias in one lap with five to go. Permission to become a complete fan. Uh, no, I am your mate. <laughs> Sorry. Go on, Sylvain. Rostrum boy. I hope you're up early in Boston. Come on, Caroline. I'm sure you can chat loud enough. Put the bottle down. It's too early. Racing it. Life. Anything that happened before or after. Just waiting. Hey, 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 everybody. Welcome back. Welcome back to the show of record, the show that matters, and the show that puts you on pole position for the news, the commentary, and the opinion in the world of motorcycle road racing. Yes, it is now episode 83, the Russell Holland edition of the show, and it is with pleasure that I do welcome you back. Welcome to all the new people. Thank you for coming back for those of you who have been around for a long time. So didn't do a show last week. Uh was doing a little decompression after excuse me, after Mid Ohio and a few other things going on. Um but whew, lots of stuff going on. I've accumulated a, uh, a ton of material and I'm gonna try and kick some of it to you this week. I think we have a really good show. I uh, actually have three interviews for you this show, so for those of you who have been calling out for more interviews, I have more interviews for you. So we're going to talk about all kinds of stuff. We have uh, a little bit of a recap of Mid-Ohio to talk about. Um, I'm just going to relay from, from when I was there. I never really watched them uh, on TV, really, once uh, once I was back. I have them downloaded and stored, but I didn't sit and watch it, so I can't commentate on the commentary right good uh we have uh, bsb from this past weekend at knock hill we have uh, world superbike from two weeks ago week and a half ago at um brands hatch that we need to to talk about and uh the canadian superbike uh was at shubin over the past weekend so we've got all of that and uh, our three interviews so our three interviews this week are um are quite good actually uh, the first person we'll have uh, on board for interview is uh, Jill Campbell. She is the CEO of Mazda Raceway Laguna Seca. So we're going to talk about a number of things. Um, just so you know, we didn't talk only about motorcycles and some of the things that have been going on. We also talked about a number of the four-wheel activities uh, that are going on as well. And the reason being is that um, this interview not only is going to be on Rumble Strip Radio, but it will also be on the next Live Fast Racing Show as well. We also, uh, while we're at Mid-Ohio, spoke with uh, Kenny Noyes. Many of you uh, may know him. He is an American who lives in Spain. Uh, his father is Dennis Noyes. And we'll get into all, you know, his background and everything. Uh, but he was racing for the Celtic team at uh, Mid-Ohio. So we uh, had time to sit down with him and uh, and kind of discuss what's been going on with him uh, currently and looking forward also, we had an opportunity to speak to Melissa Paris. For those of you who do not know, that's Josh Hayes' wife. Um, she is also a racer, actually quite a good racer, and we uh, had an opportunity to speak with her as well for uh, for a little bit. 
So those are three interviews, uh, all the race coverage, and we'll get to that here in just a few minutes. Uh, but let's take care of the administrative stuff. Of course, the email, as always, rumblestripradio at gmail.com. The website is www.rumblestripradio.com. That's where you can uh, download the show. Uh, that's where you can subscribe to the show, either through uh, your RSS feed, through iTunes. You can leave comments there. So a couple of people have left comments there recently. Uh, feedback has been coming in uh, through the, via the email as well. So uh, thank you to everyone who has uh, done that. Uh, there's also a button on the show, uh, excuse me, on the page uh, for if you'd like to donate to the show. And we had uh, some people donate as well. So thank you very much for your donations. And, uh, you know, continued donations help keep the show running, pay for Skype bills, uh, hosting, um, you know, all the usual stuff that goes along with associated with upgrading some equipment, which we've uh, done a little bit here, or at least to redone a little bit of equipment. And hopefully the sound is a little bit better just because we have a little more stable platform, a little of the uh, sound deadening material around as well. And I'm hoping that improves the quality of the sound. Let me know, rumblestripradio at gmail.com. And uh, let's not forget about the social media aspect of the show. You can follow us on Twitter and Pounce, so twitter.com forward slash rumblestrip and pounce.com forward slash rumblestrip. Got a few people uh, who have hooked up with us over on uh, Twitter, so uh, thanks to those of you who are uh, on board over there as well. And um, oh, who's the latest one to, uh, to join up over there? Sorry, if I can get her, uh, uh, let's see if I can find an update. Bridget, yes. Uh, Bridget uh, underscore new girl. So uh, she's uh, over on the Twitter. So uh, Bridget, thanks for uh, hooking up with us over there on the Twitter. And all anyone else who is uh, over there as well, um, you know, hit us up. We'll uh, be happy, you know, if you want to follow us, so we follow you back. Anyways, just uh, rarely talk about motorcycle stuff on uh, on Twitter, on, on Pounce. But if you want to know some other stuff going on, for example... Um, on on pounce two wheel I have I have what I've termed two wheel Tuesday so I usually put something motorcycle related up on Tuesday it's also Tunes Tuesday so we tend to share a lot of music over there as well really good communities a lot of fun so uh, check those out as well we did have a winner in our faster contest and that was Joshua Davis so congratulations to Joshua there were uh, a couple people who came, who said uh, had uh, the right answers for everything and uh, so I just you know literally. Picked a number at random. Actually, I rolled the dice. To be honest with you, I had, uh, um, you know, like, anyways, it was it was it was a pure random thing. So, uh, so Joshua was our winner, and I have contacted the people uh, at the production company for Faster who are giving that away, and they should be in contact with Joshua here in the very near future because I've been trading emails with them about that. So, <sighs> yes, lots of good stuff there. Um, Break is over for MotoGP. They are just about ready to get back to work at Brno in the Czech Republic. And uh, big news coming out is no Nicky Hayden for the race. He apparently injured his ankle uh, in practice for the uh, X Games out in L.A. for the Supermoto. I guess he uh, went to do a either double or triple, came down wrong, hurt his ankle. He's been trying to um, do a little physio with that, and it just hasn't healed up. And according to Dr. Tang, if he can rest it uh, for another week or two, he will be uh, in good shape where if he went out and raced on it this week, it'd be something that would nag him the rest of the season. So he's just going to sit for the weekend, let it heal, and then be strong for the last uh, few races of the year. So um, tough break for Nicky. I have seen some uh, 
things going back and forth on a number of different boards. You know, well, he shouldn't have been doing this. He shouldn't have been racing in Moto X, or excuse me, in the uh, Super Moto X Games uh, deal. But he had permission from Honda to do it. It's something he wanted to do. And as I've said on a couple boards, uh, how is it different that he hurt himself that versus just normal riding and training that he would do during the break? I mean, just because it's a break doesn't mean these guys aren't out uh, motocrossing, out do, out aren't out doing supermoto stuff, uh, things of that nature. I mean, uh, Valentino Rossi talks about even during, you know, not only off-season, but during the season he had this, I want to say it was an abandoned gravel pit that he used to take all of his boys to, uh, and they'd go riding in there. So, you know, these things happen. It's just, it's an accident. So, you know, tough break for Nicky. Um, one of the... Um, I guess we can talk a little bit about, uh, yeah, I guess I do have that in there. Um, because of all the interviews that are in there, I'm going to try and keep my stuff pretty brief uh, for the show. I mean, most people aren't complaining about the last couple shows, which have been a little bit longer. I had one or two people who were who were saying that, and as uh, some feedback I had, it's like, well, you know, if you do download the stuff, you can have this thing called the pause button and come back to it. You don't have to sit and listen to the whole thing and in one session. So, uh, good point. Uh, but on the other hand, sometimes just when you see two hours uh, for a time frame, it's like, wow, I got to set aside that much time. I, I understand that. So, we'll try and keep it a little bit shorter for you today. Um, hit on just mainly hit on some of the highlight stuff from, from all the events and really have this show be more focused on the interviews. So, uh, let's jump right into it and talk a little bit about what happened at Brands Hatch. And I'll be honest with you, uh, when I, I was, this uh, all happened, uh, everything that happened at Brands Hatch, I was at Mid-Ohio, so I didn't, wasn't on top of it immediately. Once I got back late Sunday, obviously I had seen what happened. Um, obviously the big news out of there was uh, the death of Craig Jones. Uh, I will put a link in the show notes uh, for the video uh, of his crash and, um, you know, it's not gruesome. It's just slightly, just a little slightly disturbing. Um, it's a 60-second clip, so that'll be in the show notes if you want to take a peek at it. If not, don't worry about it. Uh, it's just there if you haven't seen it. Um, but really, the super sport race is the only thing I've seen. I did not watch either uh, of the World Superbike races, so I'm sorry. I can't really comment uh, on that and, and what went down there, but... It's really too bad because that super sport race really was uh, was a really good race, and uh, we, even with the red, you know, there was red flag in there at the restart, and uh, Jonesy was going really well, and it was just one of those deals. He he lost the back end, went down, and then you know right in front of Andrew Pitt, and then there's nothing that Andrew could do for that. So you know, very very sad uh, what happened to Craig Jones. He's obviously very well liked in the paddock. Uh, by all accounts, a tremendous guy and uh, a lot of outpouring of support for him at this past weekend's BSB round at Knock Hill. So, um, you know, World Superbike, World Supersport will move on uh, without Craig, but uh, I think everyone is uh, still still a little sad about the deal because he definitely was uh, he definitely was a comer. Um, you know, he had obviously had all the potential. Uh, and was really beginning to come to grips there and, and show off. And and you saw what he was. He just his equipment wasn't near as good as the um, uh, Tenkata boys. Uh, obviously, on on the motor, he could he could 
rail it through the corners and just get a bit of a bit of a lead and then come any straight away people were were getting by him so um as we said on the live fast racing show uh you know he was someone when uh carl fogarty got a little little choked up and a little sad about the whole deal because as we all know foggy tends to care only about foggy and the fact that uh um, he was upset about what happened to Craig shows you uh, kind of the impact this guy had. Um, so uh, I think that's really all that we can we can really say other than to send our, our best wishes to uh, to Craig Jones, his family. And um, yeah, it's a, that's really about all I can say. <laughs> Just send our best out to his his family. Uh, this past weekend, the uh, uh, British Superbikes were at Knock Hill up in Scotland. And, uh, you know, was very unfamiliar with the track. Uh, so it was kind of cool to see see it. Again, a very small track as, as a number of these uh, tracks that the BSB runs on are, 1.2 uh, miles. Uh, but unlike Mallory Park, which is uh, very Mickey Mouse, this thing, even though it was uh, small, had a nice flow to it. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of elevation change, nice flowing track. It led to some some pretty decent racing, even though your lap times were in the you know high forty high forty second zone. So uh, race one was was pretty interesting, just because uh, the track had been wet. There was a, a very narrow line at the very beginning um, that eventually widened out because the track tended to uh, tended to dry pretty quick. Um, Tom Sykes continued on his role, was able to win that. Shane Byrne. Uh, second, James Allison was third. Michael Rudder fourth. Um, uh, Rudder thought he could get on the podium, but I think he said about lap seven, eight, his quick shifter went off. Uh, and that messed him up, and it took him a long time to try and get to grips with it. And on a very tight circuit like that, it was uh, made maybe made more of an impact um, for that. The second race suffered through several red flags. In fact, they they sent him out uh, for the warm up lap. After they gridded up, and then all of a sudden the rain came down, got red flagged. Everyone came in, caused some issues uh, with people going out on one on one tire, coming back into the pits, and then wanting to go back out on a different tire. They got held back, uh, gridded uh, gridded at the back, and I think the guy who really um, really got nailed by that whole deal, uh, as far as a point situation, uh, was Cal Crutchlow. So uh, he made a charge up through the field and ended up finishing seventh, so good on him for that. But that decision to go, I think he originally went out on either wets or intermediates after the rain came down. Um, you know, and then when everyone was making the switch to back to slicks or at least a slick rear and an intermediate front, uh, his team hadn't done that. That was the uh, HM Plant Honda team, and so he had to grid in the back, and that uh, that really hurt him. Uh, but Leon Haslam uh, was the winner. Michael Rudder was second. Carl Harris for the first time uh, this year, maybe in a long time, uh, third. Tommy Sykes just finished just off uh, the podium in fourth. Now, the big news on that, which caused the final red flag, uh, was a really nasty accident by Shane Byrne. It looked like just as he touched the brakes uh, on the front straight, as he crested and went down, uh, the front just tucked nasty on him and sent him sliding in you know, 140 miles an hour. Uh, down the road and, and into the sand and uh, he was already nursing a bit of a, a sore back so that ride certainly didn't help him but he apparently just uh, bumps and bruises no nothing broken so we'll see him back at uh, Cadwell Park here in a couple weeks but uh, uh, 
shaky, very fortunate in that he has a pretty substantial points lead. Uh, you know, everyone else has had problems all year, and that's really the the first uh, major issue that Shakey's had this year. So he still leads the uh, Superbike points, 332 to 222 uh, over Crutchlow. Tom Sykes, obviously, uh, three uh, three wins out of the last four. Uh, now up into third spot with 214 points. Leon Haslam, 199. Leon Camier, not a good weekend for him, 179. James Ellison has made a move up now into sixth spot, uh, 177 points. Michael Rudder at 174. Uh, Supersport race was uh, pretty good as well. I actually did watch that. Um, Ian Lowry, uh, James Westmoreland, and Glenn Richards were the podium for that. So the mm, some decent battles within the Supersport race, and uh, was fun to watch. And like I said, that was a uh, a pretty cool track to see. Um, Want to give a shout out to uh, our buddy over at uh, MotoGP Blog, uh, who um, we do uh, you know who's over one of the Twitter people. And he was at the Knock Hill race and has some pictures on his Flickr page. So uh, I think he linked to them off his blog, uh, but go check him out, MotoGPblog.com. And um, you can see uh, a few pics uh, from Knock Hill. But a cool track. That looks like it would be a fun uh, fun track to do some track day stuff on. Like I said, it's, uh, it's a very small track, but looks like it could be uh, a lot of fun. And... Uh, so there's some cool, if you haven't uh, had a chance to download it, especially with Race 2, with all the red flag stuff they had and the rain delays, they did some uh, some pretty cool stuff. And uh, James Whittem was pretty pretty funny on some of his uh, things he was doing, um, talking about rain racing and preparing for rain and, and just the, the, the track itself. So, um, Let's see. Before we get to our first interview, let's uh, let's just touch a little bit on the DMG and what's been going on there. Uh, Roger Edmondson, of course, throwing stuff out and uh, going back and forth with the manufacturers. No one can make up their mind what the hell's going on. Uh, can't make any decision on rules. First, um, DMG's one way, manufacturers say the other, and then it flip-flops, and it's it's really a huge cluster at this point. Um, Roger was on, uh, on the grounds at Mid-Ohio, I guess, talking to a lot of the secondary teams or the support teams trying to get a feel for what's going on with them and and really the message out of there is you know this all sounds kind of good but uh just remember that if the manufacturers aren't here odds are we're not going to be here either um just before we started recording something popped up on uh, soup which was uh edmondson coming out and saying uh, i was going to make some further comments about what's going on but with all the stuff that's happened out in public uh, i think it's best not to say anything and uh as I said to our friend John Hall, uh, it's a little late for silence, isn't it? I mean, everything's already, are you, all this drama's created. Uh, going silent isn't going to help anything either. So, I don't know, kind of crazy there. Um, oh, I'm sorry, before I forget, I want to um, uh, say thank you to Laura Stevens over at MSV. That is the uh, Motorsports Vision. That it's the sanctioning body for the BSB round. Uh, I've been trying to get in uh, and get media access to their website and got denied. So a few emails uh, back and forth over the last couple days have uh, shaken that loose a little bit, and she's trying to help us with some with some access. So um, a lot of thanks to Laura for helping us shake that loose. So, um, sorry. Like I said, I'm going to move a little. A little quicker here uh, through uh, through the show. So let me uh, let's take a break here, and I want to kick it to our interview with uh, Jill Campbell from 
uh, Monster Raceway Laguna Seca, where we're going to talk about, uh, well, things two and four wheeled. So let's have at that. Well, we're very happy to have the CEO of Laguna Seca Raceway, Jill Campbell, with us. There's uh, been a lot of things that have been going on with Laguna Seca uh, over the last couple of years and uh, kind of come up here again recently. So uh, Jill Campbell joins us here today. Jill, uh, thank you for joining us here on uh, on our show. How are you doing today? Good morning. I'm doing just great in uh, marine layered Monterey. We have a little fog this morning. So. <laughs> <laughs> T- typical Monterey morning where uh, the fog rolls in, you drive into the track, and it's you're driving through the clouds and the mist, and by 1 o'clock it'll all burn off and it'll be nothing but blue skies. Exactly. That's exactly it, yes. <laughs> and it's starting to lift now, so this is good. We, I can actually see the track right now, so that's a good thing. <laughs> that's, that's great. Um, let's talk a little bit about the track itself. Um, Laguna Seca is actually part of a – it's a state park, is that correct? Uh, it is actually a county park. County park. Yeah. Yeah. Laguna Seca Recreational Area is the park itself. Does that uh, present any problems or any issues that uh, maybe uh, would be different than of just running a, a normal track, the fact that you are in, in a county park? Oh, totally. It is, uh, it, it's a little bit like that ride at Universal Studios where all the rocks roll down the hill and you're not exactly sure what you're going to get hit by. Um, we have a concession agreement with the county that allows us to operate the racing facility. Um, and in return for that, we are the, the track rental agent for the county, but all the revenue pretty much goes to the county. And then we're allowed to have our five major events and five minor events. The county also has five major events, so um, things like, uh, events such as uh, Spirit West Coast, which is the largest Christian music festival in the country, to Sea Otter Classic, which is the largest multi-discipline bicycle event in the country. So um, it, it is it is a little challenging because you know if we owned the property, um, we would have complete control over it. Skip Barber Racing School has a separate concession agreement. They get 156 days out of the year to utilize the track. So that's kind of like having, you know, a three-bedroom house that you rent and the, your landlord says, well, you know, one of the rooms is already rented out to somebody and you have to keep the refrigerator stocked. <laughs> <laughs> but we have a great working relationship with all of these people. So it's, uh, it, it does work out in the end. Yeah. The, uh, <clears throat> you mentioned the five major events uh, that you're allowed and some of that, or maybe most of that has to do with um, with noise ordinance issues, isn't that correct? Yes, absolutely. The noise um, restrictions are established by the Board of Supervisors for the County of Monterey. And, uh, you know, for example, uh, for the Skip Barber Racing School days, they have to operate at 85 dBA. Your streetcar operates at 92 DBA approximately. So people driving into the facility are louder than the cars on the track. Wow. Um, I, I know that's been an issue with some friends that uh, have done track days there and, and uh, mm-hmm. track day schools for motorcycle stuff. Uh, uh, they've run into it. I guess the uh, the one thing that always kills me, and, and I'm sure you're aware of this, is uh, that track's been there for, for 50 years and then people build these you know multi-million dollar houses around it and then go, oh, I didn't know there was a racetrack there. I mean, come on, people. Yes. Yeah. 
We have, you know, we're, we're fortunate in that the, the development immediately adjacent to us, Pasadera, when they buy their property, they have to sign a waiver acknowledging that there was a racetrack here before they were. But we do have a group of uh, friends that um, call themselves the Highway 68 Coalition. And, you know, I, I refer to them as cavemen, citizens against virtually everything. Um, and, um, and they are quite vocal um, on the occasion, when it, whether it's noise or whether it's traffic or, or what have you. But, you know, we do remind them that the economic impact of this facility is, is huge. Um, just the races alone has an economic impact to this area. It's about uh, $200 million. So, you know, I, I think we can hold our own a little bit, but it, it is challenging. Sure, sure. Um, of all the events that you hold in all your major events, is the MotoGP weekend your biggest weekend? Oh, by far, yes. Indeed it is. Now, obviously, in the last few years, uh, well, I should say when it first came back, uh, you had probably more people than you were expecting came into some traffic mm -hmm. issues. And I know over the last few years, that's really uh, gotten gotten much, much uh, better. But uh, one question that uh, one of my uh, listeners wanted me to ask you is, is there an actual limit to the number of people that can kind of come into the facility just from a mm, traffic control, from a people control standpoint for an event like that? Yeah, we have our actual limit that, that we um, is dictated to us by the county is 50,000 people per day. And the first year we exceeded that 50,000 uh, per day, and, uh, and it, it certainly stretched us, stretched us to the limit. We also really truthfully, what happened uh, the first year, when we'd had Champ Car years and years ago, um, and I'm one not, I don't believe in promoter numbers. So I release actual numbers. But um, previous administrations, as many promoters do, you know, kind of put the rose-tinted glasses on and, and announce you know, inflated numbers. So in the prime days of Champ Car, when numbers of 150,000 for the weekend were being uh, released, I went back through uh, our records. Actually, those weekends did not um, exceed 60,000 people. So when we told people we were expecting 150,000 people, it was like, oh, no problem. We dealt with that kind of number before. <laughs> well, actually, we hadn't. <laughs> so it, it was a little shock to everybody, I think. And um, so, you know, we immediately, uh, and we certainly had a lot of input from our fans, and we immediately went to work on, on trying to resolve those issues. And, uh, you know, we got some things right the next year and not everything. But I think that by last year, we actually had the system down. Um, we brought in a professional, in 2007, brought in a professional shuttle bus operator, and the majority of our problems went away. So I think we have it nailed down now. We know a little bit more about what we're doing. Sure. It's, uh, it's, uh, it, it was obvious to me. I was there for, uh, for 2007, and uh, everything seemed to go pretty well, although I camped there, so I can't say everything about uh, traffic. Although getting out, um, there was a little incident with uh, some kids in a uh, um, golf cart that caused some problems, but being on two wheels made it easier to get out. But that's beside the point. So, um, but, well, uh, I had a friend who left immediately after the race. It took him 19 minutes to get from the track to the airport. So well, yeah, I would be happy with that. <laughs> I, I, I probably left about 45 minutes to an hour after the race ended and was down, um, you know, in Monterey 
you within you know, like you say half an hour so it was not bad at all so and it takes me that on a normal day <laughs> oh, so. that's, that's that's perfect so um obviously over the last few years you've been able to make a number of renovations to the track to improve uh, just the facilities in general um are there any more uh, big renovations coming here in the near future well, i have a lot of plans yes <laughs> um you know we're a non-profit organization and not many people recognize that, actually, or, or realize it. And so, you know, unfortunately, we don't have deep pockets where we can uh, just dip in and, and do what we want. Anytime that we do any renovation to the track, we have to raise those funds from scratch. So um, my, I, I have two or three immediate projects that I really do want to accomplish, uh, right before Christmas, our souvenir store burned down, so um, we are in need to replace that souvenir store. Also want to replace the start-finish bridge um, and uh, have all of the drawings and all of everything. Um, I just need the $2.2 million to build it. We also need to replace our trilon, uh, which is our scoring trilon, which, again, you know, everything has that million-dollar price tag on it and and that's a about a 1.2 million dollar project souvenir store is a 2.2 million dollar project also so um if it weren't for those dollar figures we would be doing a lot more a lot faster sure. but those are are just some of the things um you know we had to do a lot of work to the track in order to get MotoGP here now we want to focus more on spectator uh, facilities. I mean, for example, we do not have um, a sewer system here. So everything flows literally downhill into a holding tank. Uh, one of my dreams is to actually have real flushing toilets here at some point in time. But we have to build the sewer system to get that in place. So, um, you know, it's not happening as fast as I would like it, but uh, we uh, have a we're a 501c4 entity, which means we can give money away. We cannot accept donations. So about three or four years ago, I established a 501c3 entity, which is um, the Laguna Seca Raceway Fund, that can accept donations towards these future improvements. And that uh, is that how you were able to get uh, people like Red Bull and Yamaha to help finance uh, much of the improvements to the track over the last couple of years? Right. I mean, were it not for Yamaha, who absolutely went on record and said, you know, we want to bring this back to the United States and we want to do something for the fans. And, I mean, they have been enormously supportive. And, um, and again, you know, Red Bull stepped up to the plate when we had to tear down our existing media center and move a, literally move a mountain. And, um, and they came forward and, you know, advanced sponsorship money and enabled us to... Um, put that money to work, so it was um, it, it was a great opportunity for us. Now um, I I'm based in Detroit, so I'm right in the middle of the uh, the mess that is the American car market. And you know, <laughs> Laguna Seca is uh, uh, title sponsor is is Mazda or naming sponsor. I can't remember the exact uh, property, it's which is. Right. Yes. which is uh, owned or majority owned by Ford or controlling interest by Ford. Um, have you uh, had any feedback of whether that uh, the current market conditions are going to cause any issues going forward with uh, with that type of sponsorship? No, actually, um, and we're, we're, again, a little different in that it is the public relations uh, department of Mazda that actually is our naming rights sponsor. Oh. 
And so, um, you know, we are set, now we're in the uh, second year of a second five-year sponsorship uh, program. And uh, they consider this facility their home away from home, their spiritual home. And the intent is to continue um, in some item w- with the sponsorship. Obviously, economics do always come into play anytime you know uh, you have sponsorships. But the intent is is certainly to carry this forward. So yeah. we're just keeping our fingers crossed there. Yeah, good, good. Um, want to talk a little bit about uh, MotoGP here for a second. Um, mm-hmm. Have there been any thoughts of keeping the AMAs to a single date uh, that you have for them now in September and then just bringing the whole MotoGP show in for the for the July date? The uh, decision not to run the 125s and the 250s was actually made by Dorna. Mm. It, it, was, it was not a decision that, that we made initially. In order to bring the 125s and 250s, it's an additional $2.5 million sanctioning fee. Wow. And that's a little bit beyond our means, to be honest with you. Um, we wanted to really showcase the best in American road racing and the best in European road racing. Mm-hmm. And we feel that we accomplished that with AMA, and believe it or not, we have a lot of people that come to MotoGP just to see AMA. Now, obviously, all of that is going to be changing somewhat for the future, and we're not really sure what that future looks like right now. But that was that was the intent. And again, it, it is um, it, it's a tough one to do. You know, it's uh, the sanctioning fee for MotoGP is is huge, and when you know, and each year it increases, and each year our costs increase, and we've tried really hard to hold our ticket prices uh, on an affordable level, um, but um, and we've held them pretty static for three years. Uh, this year we got hit a lot by additional fuel costs. Um, to give you a prime example, our tents, et cetera, come out of L.A., we got hit with an additional $30,000 fuel cost just to bring our tents into place. Our freight, we have to pay for the freight of the motorcycles and equipment coming across um, for for MotoGP. That increased by another $24,000 this year. So, you know, we're looking at getting hit right, left, and center. So being able to afford a $2.5 million additional sanctioning fee for the 125-250s it, it is not in the cards at the moment. Gotcha. <clears throat> And uh, unlike a number of other MotoGP events in, in the foreign countries, there, there is not a foreign government underwriting a, a lot of that for you. It's <laughs> your own your own dime, essentially. It is. I mean, to give you a prime example, we have to we have because of the Monterey Peninsula and the way it's divided up into different uh, regions. Really, we have a total of twelve law and fire agencies that we have to pay to do what they do here in the on the facility. That bill alone is in excess of $300,000. Um, a lot of the countries that you're talking about, all of their law enforcement are provided free of charge. Um, but we have to pay. Wow. Yeah, so that's uh, it's all the little things that uh, that tend to add up to, to they quite do. a bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, you uh, you mentioned the whole uh, the deal with the AMA, and um, you gave me kind of a perfect segue, and, and this may be an area you can't comment too much. But uh, uh, obviously there was a lot of... Um, uh, 
stuff that came up with a, a leaked email, and I don't think it was from your track, but uh, a number of concerns that have come up regarding uh, the DMG purchasing uh, uh, rights to the AMA Road Racing Series. Uh, mm-hmm. Were those, was everything in that, uh, those were all pretty legitimate uh, concerns that all the track owners have? Would that be a fair statement? Um, no, not really. Those were the thoughts of, of one track owner. Um, and certainly, you know, um, there, are, there are elements of, um, of that memo that everybody shares. But uh, again, they were one person's thoughts. I think, you know, he, here's where, uh, as, you know, uh, in general, I believe the track operators would like to see. We rely very much on um, manufacturer support for events. Uh, you know, we're a Yamaha track. Uh, Yamaha, the manufacturers um, not only financially help to support it, but they pay the stars to ride. And so, uh, you know, I can look out of my window you know, several days a year and see motorcycle schools out here running with, with no-name people. And I can see that for free. Um, I don't want to buy a ticket to see that. I want to buy a ticket to see Matt Miladin or Ben Spees or, or uh, Bostrom Brothers race. That's why the fans are buying tickets. And those guys can race because the factories support them. So without that factory support, you don't have the stars, you don't have, you know, um, a lot of financial support that that promoters need, and um, I I don't see how really a series without factory support will survive. It will become nothing more than uh, glorified club racing. Yeah. Um, Now, you you and a few other tracks have the... uh I guess the position that uh, uh, with the DMG being owned essentially by the France family, NASCAR, who also control Grand Am, um, if you were to, let's say the manufacturers uh, do this proposed breakaway series that's been rumored and talked about, um, would that cause, do you think that would cause issues in also bringing Grand Am uh, to the track? I'm not sure, really, and, and that's a question I think we all have on our minds as to, you know, a question that we need to ask, because I'm hoping that um, there is no relationship in that respect, that if we run a Grand Am race, we run a Grand Am race, and that the D&G element is not um, dependent on that. Gotcha. Yeah, we'll just see well. With uh, with the politics that go on down there, no, one, well, probably no one knows until the last second, unfortunately. So, no. Uh, and I'm hoping I have a meeting scheduled with Roger Edmondson on the 22nd of August, and I'm hoping to get a lot of my questions answered at that time. And we have a very good relationship with Roger, and certainly with Grand Am. And actually, in my former life, in my uh, former business, um, Formula USA. Uh, headed by Roger Edmondson and Doug Gonda, were clients of mine. So I, I go way back, um, but, and, you know, I don't believe that any track operator has held back in uh, letting Roger know how we all feel. Um, we have now established the Road Racing Industry Council that enables us to not get into antitrust situations, etc. cetera. But, um, you know, it is, uh, you know, just... Uh, a means, a vehicle for us to be able to talk to each other. Sure. Now, you run both Grand Am and ALMS uh, at yeah. your track. 
Um, do they do they tend to attract the same audience, uh, or are the is it maybe two different audiences that come out for those events? There's certainly a little bit of crossover, but I, I will tell you, you know, one of the most disturbing elements for Grand Am, um, and this is what you know, American Mars went through several years ago, is that about five up to about five years ago, um, give or take a year, American Mons did no self promoting, so. My argument always has been my job is to promote the event. My job is not to promote the series. And so by the time an event comes into my market, uh, the market should already be aware of what the American Le Mans series is or what the Grand Am series is. American Le Mans caught on, um, and it has grown tremendously over the past five years for us and has a good, strong uh, fan base. Grand Am is still in that uh, infancy stage where it has no real core fan base right now and needs to jump up and step up to the plate of really promoting itself as a series because it is incredibly good racing. And, and people that we have come here and see it for the first time go away saying, oh, my God, I can't believe I missed that, or you know, I'll be back next year. But it's a very slow process. We need that, that self-promotion um, in order for the event to grow. Grand Am is much more of a um, grassroots kind of uh, attraction, um, more gearheads, uh, whereas the American Le Mans series has established itself in that category where you're going to go there to be seen, and you're going to go there for the great racing. It, it's um, established itself as the technical um, with the prototypes, with the way that the research and development goes into, um, you know, see the sports car race on Sunday, buy the street car on Monday kind of mentality. So uh, it, it is different, but it, it, I believe there is growth potential for both series. The, um, the hospitality for ALMS, is that um, similar or would it be larger than what we see for MotoGP? Um, it is uh, not at MotoGP, we uh, have 12,000 people here for hospitality. Mm. And so uh, we, we don't, we're not quite as big as that for the American Le series. But it certainly, um, you know, we, we have very strong hospitality for, for sports car racing as a whole. Even with Grand Am, uh, we have pretty good hospitality for, you know, what is in essence a small event. Sure. And um, la lastly, I want to touch on uh, the big event you have coming up, uh, is it this weekend, is the Monterey Historics? Yes, indeed. This is our second largest event, actually. That, um, I guess if you're uh, into vintage cars, that's sort of a jaw on the floor, just kind of let the drool flow uh, with, with mm -hmm. I mean, what is there? There's probably a billion dollars worth of equipment on, on the grounds there, easy. Oh, Easily, it's like a kid being in a candy store. I mean, it is. It is truly amazing. When I first got it, and I used to uh, own my own historic races in Portland, Oregon, before I moved here and took this job, and it always amazed me that you know you'd see a five million dollar Ferrari out there racing at speed, and you know I remember asking the question, "Oh my God, you know what happens if you wreck it?" And you know the response was, "Well, you can only do about six hundred thousand dollars worth of damage to that car." Oh, like, uh, yeah, right, okay. <laughs> I'm really not in this league, um, but the cars are phenomenal. 
Uh, we have Mario Andretti coming this weekend, and uh, certainly, you know, Mario has a huge history here at the track. He's actually going to be out there running around in a car. And um, it is, you know, people think that, um, these cars are not out there racing. Trust me, they are. And, and it, there is some fabulous racing out here uh, this weekend. Yeah, I, I, well, would, I would imagine people like um, Enzo Ferrari, Bruce McLaren, and then, uh, you know, uh, Colin Chapman probably, uh, what's what's the word, they probably roll in their graves every time they hear of cars sitting in hermetically sealed uh, boxes somewhere on display, and that nothing probably brings them more joy than to see them, their, their, their creations out there on track. Oh, absolutely. I mean, some of these cars look better than they did when they were first built. Um, I, I mean, they are lovingly restored. They are restored respectfully driven. Um, these machines, I mean, you, you figure, I mean, a lot of these machines are at least 50 years old, and they're running as well as they did when they were first out of the box. Yeah. And uh, a lot of old-time uh, drivers come out to, to run those cars as well, which has got to be a, a great attraction for anyone who's in, the, uh, you know, also, you know, more even more into the history of the sport. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, it is a thrill to see people like Dan Gurney, Phil Hill, Sterling Moss, um, you know, Bobby Rahal uh, will be here this weekend. We've got some Formula One drivers um, actually driving the Toyota Race of Legends, which are modern uh, science, Toyota Scion cars, but um, we've got Timo Glock, who was on the podium last Formula One race. So, you know, th there are, is not a category of race car drivers that don't appreciate um, this race. It's phenomenal. Yeah, that's one of those. It's an event that I've got to make it out for one of these days uh, in the near really? future. So, four hundred and eleven historic race cars in the paddock this weekend. Wow, that's phenomenal. That really is phenomenal, and it's thirty thirty fifth year of this happening. It is. Wow. Yes. Just tremendous. So, well, Jill, uh, we've taken up uh, some of your time here. I know you're very busy getting ready, ready for uh, for the Monterey Historics, and uh, we do appreciate your time talking to us today. I want to thank you very much for joining us here. My pleasure entirely. Any time, it, it truly has been a pleasure, and thank you. So, uh, once again, uh, as I said there, thank you very much to Jill. Uh, we spoke with her after that. Uh, uh, after we wrapped up the interview there, uh, again, spoke to her for a few more minutes. And, um, man, great person. Um, I had I, never spoken with her before, so but I was very surprised, very open person, and I uh, was very happy uh, that she was uh, open to discussing some of the issues with uh, with the DMG. And if you're out uh, out there in the Bay Area or any within driving distance, and you, I, I would really recommend that you head out to that um to the Monterey historic stuff, just some really, really cool old cars. If speeds tends to show that stuff a month or two down the road, uh, some of the races that go on, but just get your camera ready and just get ready to drool. If you're into old sports cars and old race cars, just like I said, I got to make it out there for one of the, one of these years for that thing. It was just uh, just so cool. Um, let's jump and talk about uh, the AMA at Mid Ohio. Uh, the first thing that jumps out at me is the Sunday race for the well, actually both superbike races jump out at me for two different reasons. Uh, Saturday's race with all the red flags, UEV uh, barely made it on TV or yeah, barely got done to make the whole race on TV, you know, live to tape type of deal. Two hours and fifteen minutes to get that thing uh, in the books. So 
First with, uh, you know, everyone knows the situation. Hodgson's motor blew, I guess, blew the cases wide apart, oiled the track up. And, um, you know, the the crash with uh, Shane Narbonne, Dean Misdal, and, oh, crap, I can't remember the third person now. But, you know, we're all worried about Narbonne after the track, or excuse me, at the end of the day, just because he got, he got a helicopter ride, but uh, by all accounts, uh, things uh, things are okay with him. Uh, Mizdal as well, obviously tore up his wrist a little bit and, and a few other issues. So uh, everyone came out of that uh, okay, uh, but uh, so there was that. Um, then the morons uh, was that was it? Then that the morons dumped the uh, the cooler off the bridge, and then when. Uh, uh, Matt Lynn's bike uh, caught on fire, and and oh, man, I I can't believe that corner workers are there. Look, I've got all the respect in the world for corner workers, and and they nine and nine and a half times out of ten do their job very well. But I just couldn't believe it that a corner worker made Matt come to him to get the fire extinguisher. Then he had to take the fire extinguisher to the bike to put it out because it was on fire, and then they decided to throw the red flag. So that was just madness. Uh, and then I also felt bad for Matt, bad for Matt Lynn because that is the only bike they had for him in the Corona team um, for him to race. So with that, he was done, um, hoping they have a bike for him at VIR. I would assume they could put another one together, but just, just mm, let's just say I, I, I talked to someone on the Corona team while I was there and. A lot of the things that we've talked about in the past about them were, were definitely confirmed uh, there. And I, I'm not going to really say anything other than that because there's some good people on the team. Um, you know, Some of the people I'm friends with have friends on there as well, and I don't want to screw anything up with that. But let's just say many of the things I have said in the past and maybe you have heard rumors of about that team more than confirmed by speaking with someone else on the team and by, by kind of what happened, especially with uh, Matt Lynn. So we'll just... We'll leave that at we'll leave that there. Um, let's see. Sunday's superbike race uh, was a it was a huge snooze fest. I mean, after lap three, very little changed, and it was just a snoozer. That was one of those things you couldn't wait to be over just because, uh, literally just because. Um, yeah, I, I can't really say about that. It was just big snooze fest. Um, everyone's seen the results from that. And then, uh, I guess the only other real issue was, uh, was Garrett Carter. That was a bit scary because he, uh, came onto the front straight battling, uh, for position, got on the grass, bike went down and his head smacked the, um, uh, the ground, uh, excuse me, smacked the, the track pretty hard there. And he was, he was knocked out hard for a little while. So, uh, hopefully Garrett, uh, he's a pretty good kid and not, uh, his father is a completely different issue. We don't need to get into that. Let's just say I've had dealings with his father, and um, he, his father makes Mary Spees look, you know, easygoing. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, hopefully Garrett's going to be uh, okay with that. Just uh, I think he ended up with just a really bad concussion off of that. So, uh, Super Sport race was uh, was very good, and um, so. Good weekend for Josh Hayes, our friend over there, uh, first in Formula Extreme, uh, as he said. Uh, yeah, so that was the red flag of Formula Extreme, as he, you know, as he said in the uh, press room, and I'm sure you've seen it other ways. Uh, you know, there was no way Jake wasn't going to get around him if that race went a couple other 
couple more laps. So he uh, he counted himself fortunate for that win and then a podium in uh, Super Sport. So I think you know I was going to put the originally the the Bostrom interview or the the press thing for for Bostrom in the in the 600 Super Sport thing, but. Uh, with just so much in the show, I just just not enough time for that. It was kind of cool. It was kind of funny. Just you know, anytime you get Bostrom rolling for a little bit, it was it was pretty funny. And I guess the only other thing that was comical about that was Roger decides to pop in uh, for that uh, for that press conference, and then you know when they open the questions for uh, for the media, anyone else with a question, Roger like you know obviously has to get in there with this cross promotion for the grand sham series and like well so bad talk about your experience in the grand dam race you know and everyone just kind of like i think i said something you know just like kind of semi under my breath while you know nice cross promotion there roger that's your only reason here is pump your grand sham series and you know a couple snickers out of that from a couple people around so yeah it was uh it was a pretty good weekend overall a lot of fun down there went down there with my buddy dan and uh, bombed around there. Uh, I have to say, I was hugely impressed with the Red Bull Rookies Cup, and uh, really the best race of the of the weekend was the Red Bull Rookies Cup. Um, Hayden Gillum ended up winning by by a pretty decent margin, but the battle between second and sixth was was pretty epic. Uh, the kids put on a really good show, and I really want to take uh, take a second and and talk and. Uh, and really just give a, I, I, a shout out to those guys because one of the things that I really liked about how they did, uh, one of the things they did is anytime the kids went on and off the track, they, they made a, a, a spectacle of it. They all kind of, especially going onto the track, they all went out from their pit area, which is sort of an upper paddock area, um, and made a spectacle of it. All the bikes coming down at once. They had uh, sort of an escort down and horns blowing and whistles blowing and stuff like that just to kind of draw attention so uh you couldn't help but not i mean you, they they made it obvious that what was going on that they were coming out so you drew your attention to that uh just the show all of like i think 22 125s it was just it was really cool and really well done and i'm assuming they're doing that to, at the other places uh, as well you know throughout the year so um props to uh props to the guys uh, to everyone in associated with that series. Um really enjoyed the series. Uh the kids are really good. Uh the racing was excellent. So um yeah, I'm looking uh looking forward to seeing that come back and hopefully the DMG doesn't manage to screw that one up as well. So Ah, okay. So with that, uh once again we're going to go and uh, for another interview and this one is going to be with Kenny Noyes. And, uh, sorry, uh, as I said, Kenny is an American kid. Well, he's as much Spanish in a lot of ways as, as he is American, but, uh, good guy and, um, really want to see this guy do well. And I think the, uh, Celtic crew were, were pretty happy, uh, with, uh, with what he did. He ended up, uh, 10th, uh, I believe in Sunday's race Saturday with all the red flags. Uh, he was doing well. And then on that last, they went out for the last restart in uh, in superbike and he had some issues uh uh braking clutch issues or electronic i don't know he just he came in and and i think i, I spoke with him about a little bit about it um but just uh, just some issues that really screwed it up because he was looking good for uh, a possible top 10 there as well so uh, anyways let's uh let's get to that interview uh with with kenny
Having a chance to sit down with Kenny Noyes. He's um, many people know him as the American guy who lives and races in Spain. Gets a little, gets a little pub over here though too, thanks to uh, John Ulrich and a few other people. Chris Johnham over at Road Racer X. So uh, Kenny's here racing for the Celtic team at Mid Ohio and I think for a couple other races. So uh, having a chance to sit down with him. Kenny, how you doing? Doing good, doing good. So far, it's been a it's been a good weekend, um, and uh, looking forward to the race in a few hours. So you, two years ago, you tried to set up your own program to come race like three races here with Mid Ohio. Trying to remember, it was Laguna for during the MotoGP weekend, Mid Ohio, and then VIR, and that was that was what it was. And probably less said about that, the best at this point. But um, what brings you back this time? Well, things started going real well this year in Spain. Actually, the start of, I mean, the end of last season, started being up front consistently and got got a really good feel with the team and with the the tires and everything. And um, this year in the Spanish Championship, like I said, it started out real well. And uh, the thing is they have a big gap in, in August where they have almost a month and a half with no racing. And uh, we talked to, I knew Barry for, actually from when I came last time and then from when he went over to Spain with, with PJ uh, in 125. So we talked about coming over and doing these two races and it all it all came together great. So, I mean... The, it's a really good chance to come over on a bike that's real similar to what I'm used to and give it a shot over here. So some people follow you over in Spain and, and look what you're doing, but talk a little bit about the racing that you've done over there. You've well, done the, World Endurance, you've done the Spanish Championship. Yeah, yeah. the main focus this year is the Spanish Championship, but I did get a, a one-off ride in World Endurance that went really well because we were a complete underdog team. I mean, it was a Spanish national team up against the factory guys that do this you know every weekend endurance and it's a whole another world so the thing is we had we had a bit of track knowledge there to our to our advantage and the rain helped it out too so it was it was a really difficult race i mean six hours at night in the rain <laughs> it was awful but it was worth it because we got a you know we got up into second place we only got beat by the the factory team the suzuki that they've been world champions i don't know how many times so uh, the for those that don't know, fill us in a little bit about the the Spanish Championship and um, like how kind of how the rules equate over there versus versus here. It's because you're racing Formula Extreme over there, but that's not how we describe Formula Extreme here. No, no, it's it's a thousand cc. It's really close to Super Stock. Uh, the bikes are about. I was impressed actually with with the Celtic racing Suzuki. It's uh, really really close, or even a little bit stronger on top end than my bike in Spain. Um, as far as the chassis, pretty much the same rules, except we get to run full brakes in the front. We can put whatever calipers, whatever master cylinder we want. And the other big difference is the gearbox. So we can we can have a short, you know, short racing gearbox. Allows you to it makes it easier. Here, I'm, I don't know if it's because I'm new to the track or or because it's a tough track to get the gearing right. But I've been struggling between, you know, some corners between one gear or the other. It's hard to hard to make it work you're not really a road racer or originally weren't a road racer by by trade you're actually a, a dirt track guy and actually won a championship on the on 450 back in the day yeah yeah it was actually i have a 420 i think before the 450 yeah when that young anyways no i was yeah i started off in dirt track started off kind of late started off when i was 16 on xr 100 so i was racing against a lot of kids that were 13 but um you know it, it was real fun to race dirt track um, and and after I won that championship, actually, I it was I had to really decide, you know, which way to go. Either go into Harley V Twins or go into road racing, and 
I just I, I tried road racing a little bit, just some club road racing, and had a, had a real good time. So we decided to go that way. But so is it true that the first time you went road racing and went into a corner, you went you stuck you, you went to go stick your foot out because it was just a habit? <laughs> no, actually no, no. But I didn't get my knee down for a while though. I was just leaning it in. So I know a lot of people who don't know your backstory are going to wonder how you ended up racing in Spain, but you've actually lived there off and on like your whole life because of your dad. Yeah, I was born in Spain and lived there until I was 14, and then moved to the States and went to high school and everything here. Started racing in the States. And then uh, then actually the opportunity to race in Spain came up through um, through some friends of my dad's, and you because know, he knows a lot of people there from racing, and they had a, a good junior program going a good team that I could learn how to road race in you know because the first years are, are tough so so uh, we decided to go go start over there but now we're at a stage where I'm pretty much you know one of the top guys in Spain and and looking to go next year either here in the AMA or to the world super sport racing in Spain is a whole different world even even for your series that's there's guys who show up with big transporters and big hospitality. It's it's a little mad over there, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, my team, the one I race for in Spain, Motorrad, has two two semis. You know, they set up one is the one in front of the pit box, and the other one is the hospitality area. You know, it's really professional on that level, but the difference is that it's not there's not direct factory involvement. I mean, even though you, there's a lot of big trucks, a lot of really professional teams, you don't have the, the direct factory connection you got here in the AMA with Superbike. You've been in the AMA paddock off and on, off and on. How's the how's the feel between here and and Spain as far as just being in the paddock with the teams, the transporters? I mean, in some ways, the lack of hospitality that we have here in the U.S. No, but I, I think it's a really cool paddock here. I think it's, you know, a little laid back, a little more laid back than in Spain. I think it's super professional here also. But there's, I don't know, there's just a real cool environment here. You know, some of the Spanish teams are pretty, pretty stuck up. You know, whereas here we talk to the. You know, most of the guys, like this weekend, Jordan, the the guys, the technical guys, and actually all the guys from Jordan's team have helped us out a bunch. And, I mean, you know, giving us information that in Spain you'd never get. You know, I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get a guy telling you what their fork settings are or anything like that. So, I mean, it's really, really open, and I think it's a really cool environment, both both in the paddock and outside with the fans. Yeah. Spanish crowd's different, you know. It's the, they don't have, they don't camp there. They don't, you know, they just show up for the race day like it spectators you know but here it's a whole event it's really cool so you said for next year you're looking at your options um world super sporter back here I mean, if you you're talking to people and that's probably where it's at it right now yeah well now now we got a race coming up in two hours so yeah <laughs> depends how that goes it's easier or, you know yeah. i mean in a way it's it's kind of like come over here do two races on a on a on a competitive team and see what it's like you know see how see how i match up stack up against these guys that are doing it you know they know these tracks well, so it's a, you know, it's a good way to 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 get a feel for it myself, and also for people to to see me and see you, uh, yeah. If you come over here though, you sort of have to uproot yourself because you're pretty established over here. You're, you're married, yeah. or long-term girlfriend married, and no, yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, and then her family has got the internet cafe in Barcelona, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you could you could do a couple of trips back and forth, and you know, 
come here. It just it just all depends on the team and what the what you know what the arrangement is. Yeah, you can always make that work. <laughs> hard things getting a good fast bike, you know that's the harder part. Yeah. Just get you a good bike, good team, and you're, yeah. you'll figure it out It'll after make that. Make everything else work. Yeah, cool. Well, Kenny, thanks for uh, taking the time with us here on uh, Rumble Strip Radio. Well, wish you good luck. We've been keeping an eye on you for a couple of years now, and uh, um, hopefully some good things happen for you going forward. Yeah, great. Thanks a lot to all, to all the fans out there. And uh, nothing, either either if I stay in Spain or, or if I come over here, I'll just try to stay in touch here. So I hope you enjoyed that. And uh, Kenny is obviously, I hope you can tell, uh, a really great guy. And um, definitely going to continue to follow Follow him and, and his progress, uh, you know, for what he does the rest uh, first time here in the U.S. with Celtic, and then uh, heading back heading back to uh, Spain as well. He is currently fourth in the Formula Extreme Championship over there right now, at least if uh, memory serves from when I looked at the points uh, about a week or so ago. Uh, let's see, Canadian Superbikes were in Nova Scotia, the as they referred the Maritime Provinces and. Uh, from what everyone tells me uh, over the years and hearing about it, uh, it was a doubleheader round, and it, it's a really cool atmosphere to go out there, and uh, everyone's really great, all kinds of uh, fresh seafood for no money and type of thing, you know, literally right off the boats and off the docks. But uh, um, racing is pretty good, very interesting circuit, very tight circuit, narrow, bumpy, um, sort of a classic Canadian track, uh, really rewards, um, really good bike setup. And uh, um, sounds like the racing uh, was was pretty good. So uh, doubleheader weekend uh, Saturday. Um, let's see, six hundred race. Uh, winner was Andrew Nelson. Jordan Zoke was second, and Brett McCormick third. Matt McBride was fourth. And I believe uh, Chris Paris was in the lead there, and then yep, and then uh, crashed out uh, about lap ten or eleven. So that was uh, Saturday's 600 race. And then uh, Sunday, uh, apparently an epic battle uh, between Jordan Zoke and uh, Clint McBain. And Zoke ended up coming out on top there. McBain second. Chris Paris was uh, third. The, the difference at the stripe in, on Saturday's Superbike race, point zero five five. So like I said, that was uh, a bit of a, uh, sounded like it was a really good battle. So uh, Zoke, McBain, and then Paris. Uh, McCormick was fourth. Uh, Francis Martin, fifth. McBride, sixth. Uh, Steve Cravier was eighth. Um, so, and then uh, Sunday's races, uh, Chris Paris ended up winning. Uh, Brett McCormick was second. Jordan Zoak was third. And by virtue of uh, finishing third, Jordan wrapped up the 600 title. So that is one thing he won't have to worry about uh, coming to the last round at Shannonville. So one, last, one last thing for him to worry about. Um, he can focus strictly on Superbike. And then uh, Sunday's Superbike race, uh, McBain came back, you know, came back and ended up winning. Uh, Brett McCormick second, so uh, huge props to Brett for that. And then uh, Jordan ended up finishing third. Um, Zoak is leading the championship in Superbike with 287 and McBain with 245. So uh, Zoak just needs a pretty solid race on Sunday at Shannonville, and uh, I'd have to do the points, but uh, let's see. There's a total of 54 points available, four points for pole, but let's just go 50 points because that's a win, and currently Zoke is 
40, what, he's 43 points up. So literally he just needs to score. Like I think if Jordan gets pole, um, he could uh, lock up the championship there over McBain. So, uh, but um, been some good racing this year in uh, Canadian Superbike. I am still waiting to hear if I'm headed up there to announce for Shannonville. I should know within the next couple days. So hopefully by the next time uh, we talk to you here, uh, I'll have uh, information whether or not I will be going up to Shannonville to announce. I'm hoping to do so. I really want to go up there and uh, and see the final race of the season, Shannonville. Um, interesting track to race on. Um, usually gets a really good crowd and just, you know, hey, everyone knows uh, from me talking about in the past, like going up there, like the people, like the series. So it, uh, it's a lot of fun. All right, with that, um, let's uh, go to our last interview here. And, again, this is going to be with uh, Melissa Paris. She is the wife of Josh Hayes. Uh, most people know that, but maybe not. And uh, you, you tend to see her hanging out with Josh and supporting him, you know, whatever, and helping him out uh, at the AMA races. What many may not see uh, is that when in Melissa's racing, uh, roles are reversed. Uh, Josh is out there helping her, lending support, although she has a crew for helping her out, a two-person crew uh, that helps her out with her 250, and then Josh is around to lend his support um, however he can. So uh, she's a great person, and um, we're really, you know, really happy to talk to her. So, and like I said, she's a really good racer, too. So let's, uh, let's get into that interview uh, now. So I do a little something different here on Rumble Strip Radio. We're at uh, Mid Ohio, and uh, going to talk to some up-and-coming racer, <laughs> someone who is uh, who I've watched for a few years, mostly because she's a two-stroke racer, and well, everyone knows my bias towards two-stroke racers. So we're uh, here with Melissa Paris, and Melissa, thanks for joining us on Rumble Strip Radio. Yeah, thanks for having me. Let's talk a little bit about your racing first, because that's what we really want to talk to you about. Um, you've been racing for, what, four or five years now? Yeah, I think this is, yeah, four or five years. It started out, like, kind of halfway through a season on a 600, and then um, when I turned expert and I wasn't learning quite as quickly as I wanted to be, not running where I wanted to be running, I had a bunch of close friends staged an intervention on me and got me racing 125, so... Tried a brief foray back into 600s last year, but had so much fun on the 125 that it just kind of made sense to do 250s for this year. So you start out running at Willow Springs. Yeah, um, that's where I actually did my first race at Streets of Willow, and then after that, I mostly just did WSMC up at the big track. So it's been like a big change coming out to the East Coast and like riding so many different tracks, and I see what a benefit it is not just to be at the same place week in week out. Although Willow, depending on what month it is, it's a different track every time, depending on temperature, wind, and all that, right? Yeah, I guess you're probably right. Uh, Willow, I think, will make you make you a tougher rider when it comes to things like wind. I think I have a much different definition of what windy is than a lot of people probably do. <laughs> so it was your friends that pretty much got you into the 125s? Yeah, um, like I said, I was on the 600s, and I wasn't doing that well, and like my boyfriend at the time was like, man, you're not even having any fun, and... A, another girlfriend of mine who raced had just started racing 125s, and it was like, like truly like an intervention. Like you would have thought I was a drug addict or something. They all sat me down and they're like, "This is ridiculous. Like you're not having fun. You're spending a lot of money. 
you're going backwards and and so with that like I was really lucky my dad actually like in his uh, motorcycle innocence I think had it in his mind that I could less chance of hurting myself on a 125 than a 600 and so he actually helped me to sell the 600 and get get into a 125 and so it kind of worked out because it got him more involved in my racing too and altogether it was just a good move for me I think. So the, the fact that it's so light not a lot of power you actually have to learn how to ride a motorcycle right? Yeah you definitely do and just I mean just stupid things like you have the confidence to get the thing to full throttle like every chance you get and really like learn how to ride it like to its potential so then when you get on a 600 you know you're not babying the thing around you're like okay I know I gotta get this thing to the stop every chance I get so I think it's like a really important learning tool and like I'm glad to see like all the kids coming up you know are like having that chance because kind of the way I came through trying to figure it out on a 600 it's just it takes so much longer to figure it out. Well and half the time everyone who gets on a 600 in a club race thinks they're going to be the next you know, Josh Hayes or you know whoever and so they're out there you know they, there's a reason they call it the blood sport class. Yeah definitely and I, I agree with that but then now if you're racing 125s and 250s with all these teenagers man the thing is like I feel safer racing with Hayden Gillum like rubbing elbows with him and Miles Thornton and like swapping paint with them than I think I ever did with some like 30 something dude on a 600 that walked into a dealership and thinks like oh I can do this you know because those kids just have so much experience and their racecraft already is so good so I don't think there's a better place to try and hone your skills. Well, you're you're rather petite I mean you're what five three and uh, 89 pounds or something <laughs> like that but I mean looking at some of these kids when we're at Road America I'm, I'm looking at it going well I obviously can never get on a 125 even if I got down to raceway because these guys are like 60 pounds can't even touch the ground with both feet yeah definitely like 5'5 five five, by the way but even still I'm cramped on a 125 so you think you're cramped I'm almost 5'11 yeah I know I like I know people that are like 6 foot on these things and I'm like I just don't even know how you do it because when I get off like I'm, I'm young and my knees hurt when I get off of it so Definitely, I think that's why I picked the 250 for this year because, like, literally, I don't think there's a motorcycle that could fit me better. Um, and I do have an advantage over some of the big guys that I'm racing with. Um, everyone wants to say, like, oh, her bike's so fast. And I'm like, come on, man, you got, like, 30 pounds on me. But the front-running kids, I mean, I'm about the size of a 15-year-old boy when you get down to it, I guess. So, so it's a pretty even matchup, probably. Last year you did some endurance and sprint stuff in Wira uh, with uh, Greg White. Um, how did that come about? Um, well, you know, I have a pretty good teacher at home, and I was wanting to follow his plan. What he told me was the way to be a good racer, and he told me about coming up endurance racing and how that taught him so many skills that, like, still today, I think a lot of people see, like, Josh is really good in traffic, and he's got really good race craft. So, I mean, I just listened to what he said, and I'm like, well, that's what I need. I need laps on a 600, and that's going to be the best way to do it. And Josh and Greg are pretty close, and Greg, I think, was itching to get back on a motorcycle. And one of Josh's best friends from high school, Stephen Breckenridge, came out, and it was just fun. Like, it was really, really fun, and it was good because I had to go to all these new racetracks and learn to try, like, learn a racetrack, try to master a new motorcycle, and 
and do it on a setup that everyone has to compromise on. I mean, Greg's, at, well, he's getting pretty svelte now, but at the time, I mean, he was probably double my size. So um, it was a good experience. It was really, really fun. But at the end of the day, I'll tell you, I like sprint racing way more. Like, I just like want to go out and put everything I have out there. Like right now, the strategy part, not so much. <laughs> so, so is it true that Arctic glaciers are faster than Greg White on a motorcycle? Dude, man, that guy's got a bad rap. Like, I have to say, like. I was impressed with how he rides. Like at the beginning of the season, um, he was probably a little bit quicker than me. As the season went on, he got hurt, and I started to figure it out and was, was a little closer. But I think that guy does get a bad rap. He's actually like pretty competent on a motorcycle. I I think so. And then this year, you made the step to up to riding a 250. Is that it's it, that that's almost like the perfect motorcycle, isn't it? I don't think that there's anything better. It's so hard because I want so badly to be a good 600 racer because in the U.S., like if you want to race with the best of the best, like you got to do it on a super sport bike, right? I mean, even super bike, I look at it and I'm like, eh, it's not as exciting as super sport racing. So I want to say, oh, I love the 600, but a 250 is a proper motorcycle. I mean, it's a real race bike and it gives you so much feedback and it, it does everything. It's like so much precision and I just, I can't say enough about it. I mean, I love it so much, but it's, it is still a really good learning tool because the speeds are similar to a 600, and it's helping my confidence get a lot better. So now when I do get on my 600, because Josh has a practice bike, my confidence level is like three times what it was last year. And you're right in the middle of the championship for USGPRU on 250, aren't you? Well, I had a little DNF. I got on pole at Road America, set pole, and then got a little carried away in the race when some people got by me so I had a little tip over but it was a learning lesson and it's definitely something that I won't let happen again so I actually couldn't tell you where I'm in the points like at this point I just want to win some freaking races <laughs> and how was the trip to Canada last week Oh my gosh, like, the only thing I'll say is, like, I was lucky enough that a lot of people warned me that it's going to be so terrible, so I had this picture in my mind of, of just what it was going to be, and when I got there, it wasn't as bad, <laughs> so... Yeah, Shannonville's a little stark. It, there's literally grass growing through the racetrack in some places, and it, it is really, truly bumpy, and the, the hard thing is that what is a conventional race line is not the right line there, because there's, the bumps are so bad, so being a local, I think, probably has its advantage. Advantages. But um, I was lucky enough in qualifying, I snuck out behind Eddie Brunet, who's got about three million laps around the place. So he, I got some got some stuff figured out behind him, definitely. So going forward, what's the race plan for for you? Well, right now, just to finish up the season, um, I've got three more USGPRU races to get done. Um, I, I want to just be up in the front racing. I'm going to try and get back on the 600 as much as I can till the end of the season and. I mean, got to see what comes together for next year, but right now in my heart, my plan is to be back on a 600 for next year. Great. Well, thank you. thanks for uh, taking the time to talk to us here, and uh, good luck to you. We'll be keeping our eye on you. Awesome. Thanks for having me. So once again, thank you to Melissa Paris, and um, hopefully you enjoyed that, and just keep your eye out for it. It looks like uh, this past weekend, uh, the USGPRU ran at uh, the track that shall not be named, and she finished... Oh, I saw it. Hold on. Actually, it's if I go to this uh, other page back again, I can tell you. I think she finished third in that race. Let me, let's see, 250 race. Yes, Melissa finished third. And uh, so making progress. Maybe next year. It, and you said, you know, maybe 250s again next year, maybe making a move up to, uh, to 600s again.
Oh, wow. So lots of stuff. Uh, hopefully we kept the show a little bit shorter. Uh, by the time I insert all the uh, interviews into here, I, I can't tell. I'm uh, Hopefully we're under 90 minutes, but I think it's going to be might run a little bit longer than that. So uh, with that, we're going to wrap it up and get out of here. This, Like I said, this coming week, uh, the big thing is MotoGP back underway uh, at Brno. So we'll, uh, we'll be talking about that. AMA is... Uh, Got VIR coming up, so we'll probably talk about that in our next show. And um, also very excited when uh, when BSB gets going again at Cadwell Park. That's definitely a race I'm excited to see just because, you know, again, I haven't really seen many of these tracks before. But um, Cadwell Park is the one with the infamous jump and uh, where these guys do get some serious, can get some serious air time. Um, so it should be should be cool to see. So with that, we're going to get out of here. Um, let you know that Rumble Strip Radio is a production of Raul Duke Media LLC and is protected under Creative Commons license. Some rights are reserved. Uh, remember, you can always send us feedback, feed, feedback at rumblestripradio at gmail.com. The website is rumblestripradio.com. Tell your friends about it. They can head over there to subscribe. You can subscribe to iTunes. Um, you know, please leave us feedback on iTunes as well. As I said, that's really helped with our visibility over there as well. Uh, donate to the show if you could, and make sure that you follow us on Twitter and Pounce if you're on those services. And if you're not, think about joining up to them. It can be uh, can be pretty fun, and you really uh, can be some good for some networking and uh, just finding out what's going on out there. Outro music this week is a band um, never had heard of until yesterday. Kind of some cool electronic music, and um, we'll kick it out with that. So, until we talk to you again next time, have fun, be good. Most importantly, keep it on two wheels. I'll talk with you soon.